Today, we are taking an extensive look at a word that some of you may know. Before we do, I must stress that this is not merely just a word, but the most important term that we can ever come to understand in this life. Without it, we have no foundation at all to stand on. This word is justification. What is justification? How is a believer truly justified before the creator of the universe? And most importantly, how can we be sure that we ourselves have been justified? Let me first explain what justification is. Simply put, to justify is to declare righteous. Justification is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. Galatians 2.16 reads, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we see here that justification has to do with God's declaration about the sinner, not any change that takes place within the sinner. That being said, justification does not make anyone holy. It simply declares him to be not guilty before God and therefore is able to be seen as holy by God. If we were to walk outside with the question, how are we justified? And ask the first five strangers we see, we would hear very different answers. Some may say it is a specific action we must take. Others may say our good must outweigh our bad. And others may give us a list of things we must do to achieve justification. This is a problem that we see with many different religions in our world today. They all seem to have a different means by which we are justified. Unfortunately, they cannot all be correct at the same time. Allow me to give you an illustration to showcase my point. If I were to give you directions to my home, I would need to be specific about which streets to turn on in order to successfully arrive at the destination. If you were coming from the store downtown and I told you that you need to turn right onto 83rd Street, then make a left onto Bell Avenue, you wouldn't be able to get there if you responded with something like, no thanks, I'll just take the next ride I see instead and we'll get there eventually you would be going in the opposite direction and would never arrive at my house. The same concept is true about justification. And we must specifically know how we are justified in order to truly be justified. Now that we can see the problem with having confusion on this topic, let us dive into why this is so important for all of us to understand. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7 read, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 5 says that we are justified by His grace, showing us that it is solely an act of the Almighty, 
Grace is undeserved favor. This excludes any and all action on our part. It is not by anything we have done or could ever do. If we're to think that God has shown us mercy because of any of our actions, we will constantly question our salvation and risk falling into a works-based relationship with God. Without this doctrine being understood, I, I could not practically live a life of assurance or believe I could ever be saved at all. I would be in bondage to achieving my own salvation while at the same time knowing deep down that I will never be perfect, that which God requires. I would be a prisoner in an inescapable hole, attempting to work for something I will never be able to achieve. But there is great safety and comfort if we are standing in the righteousness of Christ before the judgment seat of God and not in our own accomplishments. Verse 5 also tells us that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, so clearly stated that it is not because of anything good we have done, but because of God and his rich mercy, which he has shown us. Therefore, let us not walk in self-righteousness, thinking that we are any better than those around us. Romans 3.23 and 24 read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. First, we must understand that all of us have broken God's law and fallen short of his glory. Secondly, we must grasp the concept that a gift cannot be a gift if it is earned. The Oxford Dictionary defines a gift as a thing given willingly to someone without payment. If we had anything to do with our justification, it would no longer be a gift. This should cause us to have great humility before God and before men. Not only should it stir up our humility, but also our gratitude and affection towards God. How much more should we want to live for God and serve Him, knowing that it was Him alone who pulled us out of darkness into His marvelous light, providing for us a way to enter boldly into His presence by His Son, which we can now draw near, unashamed of all of our blemishes. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The Holy Lord of heaven cannot allow evil to go unpunished in eternity. This is why he sent the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, to become our sacrifice, to be the holy covering in which we can now claim as our one source of righteousness to stand before God. Romans 5.9 reads, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Our justification is like an umbrella in the hand of a man while it is raining. The rain is the wrath of God, but the man has an umbrella a covering for the rain. Just because a man is under the umbrella does not mean he isn't still a man, a sinful man. But the umbrella, which is the righteousness of Christ, protects him from the wrath of God, 
since God, in this example, declares the umbrella holders just in his sight because of the work the umbrella does on their behalf. If God were to look down from heaven on the man with the umbrella, all he would see would be the umbrella. That is why he can declare them justified in his sight. This is called the conditio sine qua non, or the necessary condition for our grounds of justification. We must not leave here until we understand that God is completely holy and requires absolute perfection, something we can never achieve. Yet, He has provided us with the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are now declared righteous because of His perfect life of obedience under God's law and His perfect atonement for our sins on the cross of Calvary. This doctrine should be the foundation on which we build our faith and our walk with God. Without it, we can never stand blameless before Him. Which leads us into our next section. What is right and what is almost right? It is the simple Christian who misunderstands this cornerstone of their salvation and throws themselves into the bondage of a works-based righteousness over and over because they are not precise on their doctrine of justification. Many Christians are falsely under the impression that Roman Catholics are Christians too. I say falsely because the Roman Catholic Church has made their stance clear on how we are justified before God, and it directly contradicts the teachings we find in sacred scripture. Dr. C. Matthew McMahon declared, I am not ashamed to say that the Roman Catholic Church has butchered the doctrine of justification. Some Catholic theologians have attempted to rescue the Roman Church from such butchery, but have failed miserably, being silenced or even commanded to recant unless they be excommunicated. I believe the Roman Catholic Church has made the most comprehensive attack against justification, and so their canons, or teachings, are the best to illustrate what Christians ought not to believe, so that the biblical doctrine of justification will become much clearer to us, and I hope the light of it will shine brighter for our clarity's sake in comparison to their ideas. First, allow me to clearly state the Roman position. The Council of Trent is still the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, no matter what Roman Catholic theologians may or priests may say today. The Catholic Church was never, ever, and has never, ever recanted of their position in Trent. In January of 20, or 1547, the devil publicly raped the Roman Catholic Church. Is that strong language? Not at all because the Council of Trent cursed the gospel. This is no light matter at all, for men, women, and children have been brutalized by their wickedness ever since. The Council of Trent set forth in their sixth session a decree which was celebrated on January 13th. Not only have they continued in their rape of the gospel until now, but they openly declared it as a celebration at that time. First, in their introduction, They made it plain that they were extremely serious about what they were about to teach. They state that they, quote, strictly forbid that anyone henceforth presume to believe, preach, or teach otherwise than is defined and declared in the present decree, end quote. In other words, 
They were being direct in opposing true Christianity and anyone who didn't hold to their Catholic traditions and teachings. Their first attempt to destroy justification appears in chapter 4 of their decree, where they state that the blessing of justification is bestowed by the labor of regeneration, which is their ceremony of infant baptism. Justification is here seen as something God infuses within an infant when they are baptized, which is why we see the urgency for them to christen their children after birth. In their practice, the priest magically infuses the righteousness of Christ in them through his incantations and rituals. At the start, this is seen in infant baptism. Children are infused by the priest with the righteousness of Christ through the sprinkling of water. They believe that if the infant dies without being baptized, he will wind up in what they call limbus infantum, which they describe as a place just over the flames of hell reserved for infants. I must clarify again that none of this is found in our Bibles. When these infants are infused, then grow up into responsible adults, the righteousness they gained can now be lost when they commit what they call a mortal sin. It is called a mortal sin because it kills or ends their position in their state of grace. This causes them to lose the righteousness once gained and then must regain it again. They believe this is done through the various sacraments of the Roman Catholic tradition. They must confess, do penance, bear contrition, etc. to regain the righteousness again. And then the cycle starts all over again when they sin. In other words, once the infusion of justification and the righteousness of Christ leaks out of the infused believer, they have to fill up their whole filled buckets again through the sacraments of their church. By working again, justification is attained and sanctification, becoming more like Christ, may continue. In their mind, the two are blurred into something that God works into the believer on the basis of what they do or do not do. The reason the Catholic Church hates the doctrine of justification by faith alone to such an extent is because it removes the power they have to control people. The Roman Catholic believer continually ends up in a never-ending cycle of a works salvation, and hopefully, when they die, a priest can reach them in time to perform, quote, last rites to ensure that they have some righteousness still in their leaky bucket to make it to purgatory. Another man-made idea that is not found in one page of the Bible. Does this really sound helpful at all? After these chapters describing their position, they say that these stances in their canons or doctrines are not to be rejected, quote, except ye be damned, end quote. If they are rejected, those who do not believe are cursed and considered damned to hell for all eternity. Though the Pope now calls Protestants separated brethren, he must say this tongue-in-cheek since his own canons deny the truth of it. Here, they are simply attempting to make themselves look good. Luther used the illustration of a pile of dung covered in gold. Though on the outside, we would see a pile of gold, Underneath it is still a pile of dung. God justifies on the basis of the gold, not what is under it. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the pile of dung must become a pile of gold before God can justify it. 
According to their teachings, this can take hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, in this place they call purgatory. In comparison to this blatant heresy we have just looked at, here is the biblical truth expressed in the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, which means, at the same time, sinner and righteous. While we are still sinners, it does not mean that God justifies the sinner. No, not at all. Rather, God imputes to the account of the sinner the righteousness of Christ. And on that basis declares us justified. Imputation means to charge to one's account. When I transfer $100 from my account to your account, a type of imputation has taken place. In the case of the cross of Christ, His righteousness was charged to our account. Though we are still sinners, our sin was charged to His account, though He remains pure and without sin. He took the punishment of our sin as the sin bearer. And we receive the merit of His righteousness accredited to our account. Again, this is imputation. This is what we call the great exchange. This is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Now, when God looks upon the believing sinner, He sees the imputed righteousness of Christ and declares the sinner who believes just because of it, because of the righteousness of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31 read, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, whom became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that I've attempted to paint a clear picture about what true justification looks like, allow us to examine ourselves so that we can confidently be sure of our own justification before the judgment seat of God. Have you been justified? How can we know? James 1.22 reads, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I think James is giving an extremely important warning that we must all understand. He is not saying that we will be saved by doing or keeping the law of God. As we went over earlier, this is not possible. The scripture tells us in James chapter 2 verse 10 that, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So automatically, we are all disqualified. Do you feel the weight of that? If we do, we will abandon all attempts at self-righteousness. So what is he saying? James is teaching that you can sit in church every Sunday under the preaching of God's word. You can be listening to the top Christian sermons and podcasts during the week, but these things make you no more of a Christian than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Not the hearers, but the doers. He is saying that if our lives are not being affected and continually changed by the word, the faith we hold is worthless, unable to save us. Because this is not true faith. True faith always produces works in the life of the one who holds it. All of us should be crying out to God for change in our lives, asking for softened hearts towards our fellow neighbors, 
for godly wisdom in all of our decisions, for humility amongst our families, and for boldness in times of despair or doubt. If we are merely only hearers, the scriptures are plainly going into one ear and out of the other. A true Christian places weight on every word from the Bible. A true Christian does not simply pick which verses they treasure and forsake the ones they don't agree with. We are called to submit and apply every part of God's word in our lives. I remember back when I was living at home as an unsaved, quote, believer, where I'd have my girlfriend staying over almost four to five days a week. One day, my father, whom my mom was letting stay in our home as a guest, knew what was going on and said to me, you know this isn't my house, so I can't tell you what to do. But as your dad, I have to warn you that if you keep living this way and die in your sins, you will end up in hell. You cannot all la carte your walk with the Lord, picking what parts of the Bible you believe and what parts you think are unnecessary to follow or listen to. Even though this was years ago, it stuck with me. At the time, I didn't believe I was in any danger. Even after hearing his tear-filled warning, I believed that God loved me no matter what I did or how I lived. I thought to myself, but I love this girl and plan on making her my wife somewhere down the road. Our private relationship is consensual and we're not hurting anyone by how we choose to show each other love. Boy, was my understanding warped. I had no idea how sinful my sin truly was before a holy God. And at that time, I merely claimed the title of Christian, not realizing that I was living for the enemy with every bone in my body. Fast forward to today, I wish my dad was still around to give him a meaningful thanks for the warning I so badly needed but wouldn't realize until years later. I use this example to illustrate how I was merely a hearer of the word growing up in church on Sundays, but not being able to understand or grasp any of its life-changing power. Thanks be to God that he has opened my eyes to the reality of true and living faith. In the book of John, chapter 14, verses 23 and 24 read, we see, or in this place, we see Jesus describing the condition of a believer. It reads, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In verse 23, the Messiah gives an affirming statement that those who love him will keep his word. Keeping his word means submitting ourselves to the teachings of the Bible, treasuring and storing it in our hearts, and allowing ourselves to be transformed by its power therein. In the next verse, 24, Christ gives the negative of his first statement, stating that whoever does not love him does not keep his words. Unfortunately, this is how we see most people around us in the world living today, holding to their own ideals of morality and goodness, not holding to the life-changing words of the Lord Jesus. Many people today are quick to claim that they love Jesus, and yet they are living lives that are contrary to the teachings of sacred scripture. Brothers and sisters, this ought not be us. A true love for Jesus is an obedient life lived for Jesus Christ. Not merely lip service, but heart service. 
How can we resist to show the love of Christ to others when he has so richly poured it into our own hearts? I'm deeply convicted that anyone who has truly felt the hand of God in their lives is not able to contain the riches of Christ merely to themselves. This doesn't mean that we don't battle shyness or anxiety in the process, but that desire should be found within us, not merely to tell others about Christ, but to live righteously for Him in front of the world, but especially in our own private lives. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29 reads, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. In different words, John is expounding on the remarks of Jesus found in Matthew 7:20, when he said, you will recognize them by their fruits. We all understand that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So we must examine the fruit in our own lives to know if we genuinely belong to the king. I am by no means speaking of perfectionism, but we must have true contrition and sorrow for the sins we do fall into, while always fixing our gaze back upon the Holy One as we push forward in this battle against the world, the devil, and the flesh. Again, I must clarify that our works are not what save us. It is purely God's grace alone that brings spiritual sight to the blind, spiritual sound to the deaf, and spiritual life to the dead. Therefore, we have no grounds to boast. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 read, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Our faith alone is what qualifies us to sit in God's presence, which, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, is a gift from God, not from ourselves. Ephesians 2, and 8, 2 8 and 9 read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Remember, a gift is only a gift if there is no payment in return. In context, the grace we have been shown and the faith we have obtained has not come from within us, but from the one above. James 1.16-18 reads, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This text shows us that our faith has come from the Father, and that we were brought forth by the word of truth, not of our own will, but of his own will. Let this deep reality humble us as it radiates within. Allow it to let us give God praise for the mighty work of his hand in our lives. For he has given us eyes to see and ears to hear, and more importantly, a faith that saves. 
Which leads us into my final point, saving faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3, 28. This text states that we are justified by faith, but what is the difference between professing faith and possessing faith? Do we have a faith that justifies us? James chapter 2, verse 14 reads, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He continues on in verse 17 to say, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In verse 14, James asks an intriguing question. Can a faith that does not have works save us? He goes on to give the answer in verse 17, where he says that a faith not accompanied by works is a dead faith. He makes a rhetorical request asking that person to show their faith apart from their works, which is not possible. He then answers back with saying that he will show you his faith by his works. His last statement in verse 19 validates this point, that even the demons believe and shudder. It is not merely belief that God exists that saves us, but because even the demons believe, and yet we know their fate. It is easy to superficially make that claim, but not live as though we believe that claim. If we truly believe that God sent his son to die for our sins, our lives will be radically different from how we once lived prior to receiving that astonishing truth. We won't continue only to serve ourselves, but naturally we will want to serve him who purchased us with his precious blood on the cross. Once we can fully recognize and come to know the price that was paid for our redemption, needless to say, we will be changed in our thoughts, words, and deeds. 1 John chapter 4, 19-21 read, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. His love causes us to have love for others. Before we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we only have love for ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that non-Christians can't be sacrificial, caring, or empathetic toward others, but the world's definition of love differs from the biblical definition of love. Now, I understand that there are multiple Greek words for love, but the love I am referring to here is not a love that is contained in human nature. I am talking about a love that the Bible calls agape love in 1 John 4.8. It's a love that is only fully expressed in God's nature. Our natures by default are sinful. We can find this in Ecclesiastes 7.20, Psalm 14.3, Psalm 53.3, Psalm 58.3, Romans 6.6, and 8.7. There is no part of us that is untouched by sin including the way we feel and act towards other people. 
Every part of us needs to be redeemed, even our affections. This is why God says he would give us a new heart in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. It's because the old heart was not capable of fulfilling God's commands, which includes loving him with all that we are. So I'm not talking about phileo love or brotherly love or a human kind of love. The world is capable of brotherly love and sensual love, but only Christians are capable of Christ-like love because Christ now lives in us, Galatians 2, 20. God's love for us, our love for him, and our love for others are inseparable. If we have been loved by God, we will love God and we will love others. We cannot say that we love the one which we haven't seen if we do not love those we do see, fellow believers, who are also objects of God's saving love. We are nothing but liars if we say that we love God, but do not love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the next chapter, he follows up on this point by stating in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, speaking of fellow Christians. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. John is proclaiming that we can know we are children of the Most High when we love God and obey His commandments. He explains how His commandments are not burdensome to us because we now have victory over the world and all of its temptations by our faith. My friends, this is a faith that justifies. It is a living faith, a loving faith, and a righteous faith. Without such, we cannot see God. So let us once more look into ourselves and analyze the faith that we hold. Again, perfection won't be present until we meet the Lord face to face. But we must understand that having love for each other and obeying His commandments are vital qualities to knowing we, that we possess a saving faith, a faith that justifies. To conclude, the doctrine of justification is something independent from anything men can do, desire to do, or have done. It is something that is not experienced, but decided. It is something God alone accomplishes in a single declaration. Those who justification is granted are those who have not worked for it or have done anything to deserve it. Otherwise, the biblical idea of justification is lost. Don't misunderstand that. When someone comes to Christ, there is immense impact on that person's life. Their entire world is dramatically changed. But justification is not something we experience like regeneration is. In regeneration, we receive a new heart. But in justification, we are declared as righteous through the righteousness of Christ. It is not something we work towards like sanctification is. 
When we are continually sanctified, we are made more like the image of Christ. We are conformed and changed. When we are justified, we are declared righteous. Justification is not so much an experience we have, but a declaration that God provides. This must first take place before we can even begin our process of sanctification. Understanding this simple yet deep truth should bring us simple yet deep peace. In fact, this declaration that God makes on our behalf gives us perfect peace with Him. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that it is our God-given faith alone that justifies us should cause us to flee from all forms of self-righteousness, not allowing ourselves to fall into the slavery of a works-based salvation that never satisfies our fear and never satisfies our craving to know that we are saved. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. While we grasp the fact that God requires absolute perfection, let us look to the spotless lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, given to us as a sacrifice for our sins. We ourselves can now cry, Abba, Father, because of the finished work of Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Thanks be to God. Do you remember when I said justification is the most important word we can understand? I hope that we can now see we need this more than a fish needs water. If you haven't already, bring all of your sins to the feet of God. Cry out to him for a new heart. Christ will remove all of your sins and give you his perfect righteousness to stand before the Lord of heaven. If you truly repent and turn away from the sins in your life, God promises to give you a new heart that will beat to know him. He will take away your sinful desires and replace them with new affections towards him, his will, and his people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your inspired word and for your precious Son, in whom you've shown us great mercy. I pray that this message I have given will find rest in the hearts of its hearers. Lord, that you will allow us to stand firmly in the mighty work of Jesus alone. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray that we may come to know that we are justified, not by anything we have done, but in everything that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.